the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow, this the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. Now the daylight flees, now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head, curtain torn in two, dead erased to life, finish the victory. been going through the book of John, and we are in between chapters, and so because we are between chapters, and it was a good stopping point, we're going to take a, a few Sunday break from the book of John, and uh, really what I'd like to do this morning is just share with you uh, work that God has been doing in my heart and mind, and uh, I recognize that my mind does not necessarily work like yours, and so I'll invite you into the dark labyrinth. Uh, it's actually not very deep. You can't even call it a labyrinth. Uh, but I just want to, I really want to speak to you from God's word, how God has been using his word to uh, work in my heart when it comes to our nation, when it comes to the next uh, really four uh, to six weeks here in our country. <clears throat> These are confusing times, or can be confusing times, for a Christian. 
Uh, believers are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to love the people of the world, but not to love the world's systems, its beliefs, and its values. We are called to stand for righteousness, but we're also called to lay down our lives. Uh, we are to live each day in the joy and freedom that Christ provides, and we are to die daily. We are called to resist evil and to submit to government. We are called to honor authority and to defend the innocent. And as I contemplate the struggles that these calls on our life from God's word bring in this country, in this culture, in this political environment, I am very grateful to be living in this time and in this place and have the word of God. Here's why I am grateful. I'm grateful uh, that I have the word of God as a guide through these conflicts. Something that I can resort to that is not found within myself, that is not something that gets thrown around on the nightly news as biased or opinionated, uh, but something that is bedrock truth for me to land on. There's a confidence and a shamelessness that cannot be threatened by man's opinion. I am thankful to live in a country uh, that is still enjoying the blessings of freedom that grew out of an imperfect yet God fearing Judeo-Christian foundation. I am thankful that I can vote. And uh, there was no voting in Israel at the time of Paul. There was no voting to replace Caesar, per se, at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians. Uh, there was no way for the common man to follow legal ways of affecting change in leadership. And so for that, I'm very grateful as an American. I am thankful that there are God-fearing, Bible-believing men and women in positions of power in this country who are seeking to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in positions of power. However, the next four months in the United States are going to be very telling for the country, for the coming decade, uh, for our country. And I find my love for this country and my desires for righteousness in high places crying out for political revival. I desperately want to see godly people in positions of power. And I think about the situation of the Supreme Court right now and the importance of that nomination, the importance of the election coming in November. And as I think about what could happen in this country if righteous people are in power, I start to, uh, man, I start to realize how unbiblical my thinking really is. Change and politics and power and people and ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my desire this morning is not to downplay, downplay our desires as believers to see change, to hope for change. Not even to downplay our desire to vote, which I hope you have a desire to vote and will do that. But Lord willing, and if the creek doesn't rise, Bethany and I will be there at the polling place. We'll be voting. We'll be voting for men that are not perfect. We'll be voting for policies that we hope will encourage justice and righteousness and peace. We will absolutely be voting to protect life, especially the innocent and the unborn. However, the question is not, uh, will we vote? The question is, in whom will we place our trust? And how my actions, priorities, and anxieties and thoughts betray a miss placed faith. And I just say, as I contemplate these things, as I uh, think about them, as I listen to talk radio, which isn't always healthy, as I read the, the I say read the newspaper, 
Does anybody read the newspaper these days? <clears throat> Sorry. As I see the news, as I read online, uh, my faith is called into question, and, and, and though I desire righteousness, oftentimes my thinking is unbiblical. So today I want to take some time to think about politics and the power of the gospel. And uh, we'll see that here in 1 Corinthians. Think about what could happen. Think about what could happen for this country if believers were in positions of power. Uh, if we could elect a president that values Judeo-Christian values for church, family, and state. If the Senate could have a supermajority of men and women who would make policies to protect and help biblical marriage and the family. And think about how many lives could be saved if a conservative Supreme Court could overturn Roe versus Wade. Right? The brutal practice of abortion was, uh, could be defunded and made illegal. 47 years of protected murder and an estimated 55 million abortions in the name of the right to choose. Think about what could happen if believers would be in positions of power. People who believe the word of God, people who believe in Jesus Christ. I get excited as I think about it and how awesome it would be. Those who hate God would be on the run and righteousness would flourish. Right? No, it's not right. God has told us what has the power to affect change, and I tend to downplay it and instead put that power into the hands of politicians, of voters. So it's times like these that I must return to Scripture and put my faith where God calls me to put my faith. And I want us this morning to remind ourselves of a few truths about where our faith should be when it comes to change, particularly change in society. So I have a few points I'd like us to see. First of all, the gospel alone has real power to make real change. The gospel alone has real power to make real change. Paul, as he writes to the Romans, gives a beautiful description of the gospel. The, the book of Romans is such a treasure trove of understanding the gospel. I would encourage you to read it during this political time and constantly go back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. God's power is on display constantly to man. God's greatness is seen in his works uh, within the children of Israel in the Old Testament. God's seen in his, his power is seen in, in his creation. His power is seen in his sustaining of creation and using it to bring about his accomplished end. However, the greatest noble display of God's power, what is it? It is the gospel in you. That is the real power of God seen in the ability to change a person to reject the world system and to live a life that honors God. That is the most powerful display of our God. It is in God's word that we see his power. God created all things by the word of his mouth. Jesus Christ is called the word of God by, who, by whom all things 
were made and are sustained. And the same word says in Matthew, verses 18, it says this, Jesus Christ, the word of God says this, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus is claiming all power. That has to include the power to change men and women and society, right? All power is given unto me, Jesus says. And then he looks at us and he says what? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all way, even unto the end of the world. Jesus, the power of God, the word of God, tells us he has all power. And in that power, he calls us to go out and give the gospel. The gospel is the power of God because it comes from Jesus Christ, it carries the message of Jesus Christ, and it brings mankind to Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God. This is a powerful message of Jesus Christ. And this morning I would challenge you to think about the following verses, not so much on a personal level, but on a community level, on a national level, on a, on a societal level. Isaiah 55, speaking about the word of God and the power in God's word says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. God is speaking of his word. He's saying, as I send my word out to man, it goes out with a very specific purpose. And it absolutely will accomplish that purpose. But let me read verse 12 for you. It says, for ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. We know this passage is speaking about Jesus Christ, the word of God coming to man and the power that Jesus has to change a man from sorrow to gladness, from the desert to, to a, what, what it, it, it describes here as a myrtle tree and as a, as, a, as a rich garden of praise to God. This is what the power of God can do in a society. Isaiah 61, 1, as you I don't know if you watch the riots and if you, you read about them and you read about what's happening in our country, things that we've always seen happen in other parts of the world, but never really at home. And now we see it happening here. Isaiah 61.6 talks about what the power of the gospel does in the heart of man. It says this in Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings. That's the world... The, the word gospel means good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prisons to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. This is what the gospel does in the heart of an individual. This is what the power of the gospel can do in a community and in a society. This church should represent these truths. 
as the gospel takes root in our lives. This is what we want to see presidents and justices and leaders doing for our culture, but they cannot do it. Policies cannot bring this kind of transformation. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to affect these changes in the hearts and lives in societies of men. Why do I think that men in their philosophy and wisdom can bring about something that only the message of Jesus Christ has the power to do? And yet I think, man, if we could get so-and-so in government, if we could get this passed, if we could have this kind of court, it will bring about change. No, it won't. There is only one thing that can truly bring change to the heart of man. The gospel is the only thing that can change the heart of man. Secondly, the gospel will not be accepted by unbelieving man as the path to real change. Man rejects the gospel. Man hates the message of the gospel. In fact, the Bible tells us that the gospel is foolishness to the world. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. We had a few of these verses read, but I want to continue on with them. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, what? Foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God, right? So we heard a song. It's the power of the cross, right? As it talks about the salvation and forgiveness of Jesus' blood. To the world, it is foolishness. But to those who are saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and under the Greeks, it's foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What does it tell us in this passage will happen when we take the only thing that can change society and give it to them? What does it say will happen? They will reject it as foolishness. So think about it. If we, in our thinking, if we start to think, man, if we could get so-and-so in office, if we could get such-and-such passed, then it will change society, it will make us better, we have to realize that that is not God's intended path of change. And in fact, as we do choose the one thing that can change, the world rejects it, calls it foolishness. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2, the next chapter says, The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can they know him or know them because they are spiritually blinded. I don't think we ever really hear candidates out there openly criticizing the message of Jesus Christ in the gospel. I don't know that I've ever heard a candidate attack Jesus Christ and the gospel like directly. However, any social program that disregards man as sinful and in need of a savior is bound to only push men further from God and deeper into perdition. 
What would happen if a candidate ran on the platform that stated the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the starting point for all foreign policy? <laughs> what? What does foreign policy have anything to do with Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection? What would happen if he said that he would only appoint people to the cabinet whose individual and private lives gave a clear testimony of salvation by grace alone, sanctification and holiness? You wouldn't have to drain the swamp. The whole bottom would fall out, right? He would be laughed off the stage I truly believed he would be mocked by most American Christians. We don't see it. We, we think, man, the gospel's good for church and the gospel's good for maybe what I read to my kids at night. But let's not, that's not where we need to start with foreign policy. I mean, do you know who China is? They don't believe the gospel. And yet, don't we understand that the, the, the gospel is the power to change Man and the power to change society and to lay the foundation for equitable treatment of one another. It's, it's interesting to me. Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, Mao, a number of these communist leaders, they said that capitalism is bound to fail, socialism is inevitable. And if aided, socialism will lead to communist utopia. And this is an unstoppable train. You cannot stop it. Societies will always move that way. And the reason they thought that is because they believe in evolution, which says man is constantly getting better and, and moving up and becoming smarter and wiser and better. And as man evolves, he evolves past capitalism, he evolves into socialism, and finally this place where we all hold everything in common because we all treat each other with absolute fairness, right? Now, I tend to agree with them on a couple points. I tend to agree that capitalism will fail, that socialism will come, right, and lead toward communism, but not because man is perfectible, but because man is a sinner, and man will give up the freedom that God gives through following his word and will give it to those who will control them. And so I have a very different view, but I do think the train is moving in the same direction. Why am I tempted then to think that a society of people who are rejecting God's word can put into power men who will lead us toward godliness? They might be able to lead us toward conservatism or capitalism or this or that, but they cannot lead us toward godliness, which is what comes from real change. And listen, the gospel will be rejected by mankind, and the gospel is never enhanced by the greatness of man. You realize this? The gospel never becomes more effective because man has his hands in it. Look at, look at the verses here in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1. 
It tells us that the world will reject the gospel and call it foolishness. Well, what if we get some really good guys out there to promote the gospel? Look what it says in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of this world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's interesting, the Greek word here for not means non-existence, and the Greeks hated the metaphysical. The Greeks hated the idea that there was something out there that you couldn't touch, taste, smell, put your hands on, how foolish it was. The Greeks despised Jews for thinking that there was a God. You can't prove there's a God. You can't touch him. He doesn't come down. We can't see him. There's no God. And so it's saying here that God uses the things which are not to bring to non-existence the things that are. He confounds the wise. Man, I tell you, though, I, I struggle, and I'm often tempted to believe that if God would just save some of the big-name people, you know, the really save them so that they would get up and promote Jesus, that, that people would come to Christ, and that's bad thinking. Bad theology. It's bad anthropology. It's bad gospel. Even as I was preparing this message, I'm, I'm looking for a speaker who will come in and speak to the junior and senior high students here at Calvary Christian School. And I tell you, I am passionate that these students would come to Christ at an early age and dedicate their entire life to Jesus Christ. So if I can find just the right speaker, one who is gifted, has a great personality, who can keep the kids engaged and give them a powerful message, well, kids will get saved, right? Wrong. It's not how the gospel works, and yet we're tempted to think these things. I talked to a guy on Friday, and he said, listen, I, uh, I like to major on the gospel in all of my preaching. I'm, I'm not an entertainer. I don't give long, drawn-out invitations. I don't give emotionally charged invitations. I'm not that great as, uh, of giving illustrations, but I just want to give a clear biblical message. Right? What should my heart do on that phone call? It should rejoice, Right? Because if God's word is presented, the power of the gospel, well, where does it reside? In the speaker? I want kids to love Christ. I want kids to be saved. And it doesn't matter what I think works. God's word says it very clearly. We desperately need a speaker who believes that the power of God to save change and keep teenagers in this day and age is found in the clear message of Jesus Christ. Not in playing with it and making it awesome. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to save. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more powerful than its messenger. Look at the next verses in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The gospel's power does not reside in its messenger. By the way, I think we must understand that the gospel's power is not subject to the current cultural climate. The effectiveness of God's word is not based on the current political climate. The gospel prospers in the face of great opposition, right? I mean, if you read the book of Acts, well, it starts out by them telling the disciples, don't you preach. And they said, listen, God told us to preach, so you tell us, should we obey you or should we obey God? It's very interesting, the response of the high priest said, listen, listen, if this is of God, we'll never stop it. If this is of, God, if this is of man, it'll pass away. <laughs> We're standing here, how many years later, preaching their message, the message of the gospel? That's right. The gospel is not subject to the current cultural climate. What happened when they persecuted the disciples and martyred the apostles? What happened to the gospel? It flourished. Currently, China and, and, and even in Muslim nations, we hear of a revival of the word of God. And yes, even in the hostile state of California. I love listening to the testimony of, of two pastors out there who have stood up for the gospel by keeping their churches open. And it's amazing what they're saying. It's social distancing He's like, we can't social distance. We filled up our auditorium, which seats like 7,000, and we filled up our life center, and we filled up our parking lot. He goes, we're totally packed, and people are coming out to hear the gospel. Somebody asked him, will you go to jail for this? He says, well, I've done everything but a jail ministry so far, I think, so maybe that's the next step. And what is he saying? He's saying, it doesn't matter if the climate doesn't matter if the culture says that the gospel doesn't work or shouldn't be here. We're going to preach it anyway. In each of these places, the gospel is despised, but not only despised, it is restricted by man, by government, but the gospel flourishes because it is the power of God, and no one can stop the power of God. Remember a place called Nineveh? Nineveh would make Californians look like South Carolinians. Okay, maybe that was a bad way to say it. <laughs> Nineveh was a horrible place. God sends Jonah to preach the good news, and Jonah goes and he preaches a simple message that simply says this, repent, because in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. And, and I'm, I don't know what Jonah looked like. I remember as a kid, like he had like hair missing and stomach acid from the whale had eaten most of him. And, you know, it was kind of a grotesque thing. I don't know if that's what he looked like or not. But when he went and preached, he didn't say anything special. He didn't have a PowerPoint presentation, right? He just went and said, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. And it was the power of God that changed. And that whole culture repented, right? Listen to the last two verses of the book of Jonah. 
Remember what happens next. Jonah goes out, sits on a hillside. He's being scorched by the sun. A gourd grows up and covers him. He enjoys the shade. God sends a worm, kills the gourd. Jonah's back in the sun, and he hates the gourd, and he hates the worm, and he hates everything. And he's, he's upset, and he's really upset because God didn't destroy Nineveh. That's what's really ticking him off. And God comes to him, and he says in Jonah 4.10, it says, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for that which thou hast not labored, neither madest it to grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And then God says this, And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. And that's the end of the book. God comes to Jonah and he says, what's wrong with you? Do you not see the souls of men are perishing here? And I even care for their animals. Six score thousand of people who could not discern their, their right between their left. Most commentators believe this is talking about children. Children who hadn't had a chance to be wicked Ninevites yet. God says, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And God used Jonah to go in and say a message of two or three sentences, and through that spared countless individuals. Now, now what is God's heart for this country? And, and who are the Jonahs? Do you think that God's heart is for the children of America? Who, over the past few weeks, going back to school, are once again being indoctrinated that there is no God? Do you think God cares for them? So where's Jonah? You see, God did call some people to go to the people of Myrtle Beach and preach a gospel message. And in that gospel message, he has given the same power that transformed the king of Nineveh and all those people. Same power. And he actually says this in Matthew, which we already read. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel. You see, we just don't really believe that. Does it really have the power to change children in Myrtle Beach? What is God's heart toward America? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What has God given America? He's given to them Calvary Bible Church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are we going to do about it? Do we believe it? The gospel is not subject to the climate or the culture, the public school, the politics. And I'd even go as far to say this, the gospel's not subject even to so-called believers. It's interesting. When Paul started preaching the gospel, people hated him for it. And they wanted to stir up strife and blasphemy, it says in Acts 13. Let me just read it for you. The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. 
But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light unto the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Listen to what's happening. They're standing up and they're proclaiming the gospel. And the current climate says this. Hey, we don't like that message. We hate it. And Paul said, well, that's okay. God called us to give it to you first. You've rejected it. And now we're going to speak to the Gentiles. And guess who was listening to this message? The Gentiles. So the next verse in Acts 13, 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord as many were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Hey, if, if they reject your message of the gospel, don't stop. Why? Because God has ordained others to hear and others to come. And don't let the church stand against the message. I pray that Calvary Bible Church would never hinder the gospel of Christ. But it doesn't matter what other Christians think. The gospel is not subject to what other Christians think. It's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel prospers in times of, of, of rejection, but the gospel also prospers in times of peace. Think about the American missionary movement. How much gospel has been sent around the, country, the world because we had the freedom to assemble and teach and, and preach the gospel. God has used a time of peace. What about your household? Is the gospel at home and at peace in your household? Yes, and praise God that even in a time of peace, our children can come to know Christ the Savior and the power of, God, of the gospel can save them from sin. The gospel is not subject to the climate. It is the power of God unto salvation. Lastly, the gospel calls for our faith to rest in the power of God and not the wisdom of men. The power of the gospel enables me to put aside my personal desires and instead seek the kingdom of God. The power of the gospel enables me to rise above the fear that would drive me to trust in another man's wisdom. I would encourage you that as you sit and listen to political advertisements over the next four to six weeks, Listen to how much fear they're trying to play off of to get your vote. I mean, I've been watching advertisements, and I'm sorry if you're an older person. The candidates hate you. They want to take away your money and your Social Security and your way of life. They want to use you to build bigger houses and, and buy jets and be rich. Right? You see, the, 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 the power of the gospel allows me to put all of that fear aside and trust in God. What if Social Security goes bankrupt? All of a sudden, God's powerless to provide for you? Oh, that was his plan all along. No, God knows. What would happen if 
If we defunded the police, what would happen? All of a sudden, God would just kind of vacate his throne and not protect his children. By the way, I'm not promoting that. Just saying, think about it. What happens if there are riots in Myrtle Beach? Are you able to rise above the fear that your children will lose your way of life? The power of the gospel enables me to rise above the fear that would drive me then to trust in man's wisdom. The power of the gospel enables me to be unshaken during these troubling times. You see, in reality, as I stop to think about it, why I get so anxious about the elections, why I get so anxious about the judicial nominations, because you know what might happen? The way of life that I enjoy might be threatened. That's pretty selfish. That's pretty self-focused. Those of you who read A.W. Tozer's first chapter, he said this, after... Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover that we, what we actually believe about God. And when it comes right down to it, so many people vote for the purpose of maintaining or improving their way of life. And that is what the candidates play off of. And we as believers in the power of the gospel must be able to set that aside. We must put our trust in Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is seen that it transforms believers into people that are willing to give up their life. Give it up. That means not just giving up your life like martyrdom, but giving up the privileges of being an American and what you think that means. And our right to freedom. Are you willing to give it up for the gospel? I don't want to give up my freedom because I actually like a comfortable lifestyle. That has nothing to do with the gospel. The power of the gospel transforms believers to rise above these things and be willing to set aside all of that for the salvation of souls. Listen, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus called the people and his disciples to himself and he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall... What? Does that play into your politics at all? Does that play into what you're afraid of? Jesus says this, The man who will save his life will lose it. If I give my efforts to try to preserve a certain way of life, I have missed the purpose for which Christ saved me. However, it says, whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. Do you want true freedom in the next 4, 10, 15 years? Oh, freedom is found when you give your life over to the Gospel and its message and its proclamation. Therein lies freedom. Not in any edict from the court. Whenever you hear about your rights as an American, just let those go. 
and realize your right as a Christian is to pick up a cross and to walk that cross through 365 days of a year so that others would come to Christ. The power of the gospel enables me to glory then in God and not in man. We have a president who has helped us to understand this in a big way. He takes the glory for anything and everything. And he takes it in a very verbal way. But I tell you this, when you see the glory of God working through the gospel, what does it magnify? Not man. No speaker. No message. It glorifies God. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.27. We'll finish with this. God, who hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base of things of the world, and the things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You see, this is the power of the gospel. It takes all the politics, all the wisdom, all the philosophy of man, all the perceived intellect, and it brings it to failure. But those who put their trust in the power of the gospel are transformed, and they are wise, and they are righteous through Christ. They're changed through sanctification, and they are totally redeemed and free in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what we need to vote for. We need to vote. That's what we need to put our faith in. Not our voting, not the candidates, in the gospel. I want to find my boast in the Lord. History will write what it wants to write about this president. I just hope that man will stand before Jesus Christ one day as a saved individual. That's the history that lasts. Where does your faith rest? I love 1 Corinthians 2.5. It says that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So, so let me encourage you with this. And this is really where... God was what God was using in my thinking. We have this exchange conference coming in about seven weeks, right after the elections, November 14th through the 18th. By the way, I don't think any of us expect to know who won the election by November 14th, right? But let me ask you this. Where, where is your hope and your priority? We open, this is a precinct. People vote here. We want it to be a good experience for them. We cancel school this year, right? We want, all of every, we want everybody who works here to have a chance to go out and vote. Bethy and I will be going out and voting, but where is my faith? Is it resting in the wisdom of man? This is not a shameless plug to get you to come to the conference. It's an appeal to your faith. Does it rest in the power of God? The gospel, or does it rest in men? And then what are you going to do about it? 
Some of you will vote no matter what the climate is. You'll risk your own life to go out and vote. What will you do for the gospel? By the way, no soul winning class, no exchange conference, no memorization of a practice presentation holds the power of God. But it sure can help you get rid of your excuses. It can sure help me get past what I tend to set up as an excuse why I don't give the gospel. The seminar can help you remove the excuse. It can help you familiarize yourself with scripture verses. It can help break down some of the barriers that we tend to build up. But really the power of the gospel lies in the fact that if you are saved, you have experienced God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and you have everything you need to go out and proclaim the life-changing gospel message. What will you do? Where will you place your faith? Let's pray and ask God to help us put our faith in the gospel. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would ask you to contemplate this. First and foremost, do you know Jesus Christ as Savior? Have you experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ through the gospel message. If you do not, if you can't sit there with, with absolute confidence that yes, you know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life, today is the day. And if you are hearing this call of the gospel, respond by trusting in Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. And that you cannot save yourself. Acknowledge that there is nothing out there that can save your soul from, from giving an account to a God who made you. Believe that Jesus then came as that sacrifice to pay for your sin and give you his righteousness so that you can stand before God righteous. Call on Jesus to save you. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Believer, what does the gospel need to be effective? I truly believe that the only thing the gospel needs to be effective is an open mouth. God ordained that our mouths would be the avenue by which his power would be proclaimed. Do you believe that? Enough to open your mouth.